Hi, I'm Bill Mitchell, host of When Dating Hurts. Two years ago, I launched my Dating Violence podcast. Back then, I knew very little about recording, editing, or uploading to a hosting platform. Frankly, I didn't know what a hosting platform meant. When recording episodes, I needed it to be easy for me and my guests. You see, I was capturing highly emotional personal stories, and I couldn't have guests fiddling around, clicking buttons, starting and stopping over and over again. I launched with Zencaster, and I stayed with them. The reason is, it's just so darn easy. And today's Zencaster lets you record with high-quality audio and video. You can edit and distribute, too, all in one place. No more bouncing around from one platform to another to create your podcast. So if you're interested, go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code when dating hurts, all one word, and you'll get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. I want you to have the same experiences I do for all my podcasting and content needs. Isn't it time to tell your story? I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and survivors themselves. This is part two of the two-part conversation I had with Megan just about the time that you think things couldn't get worse, they actually do get worse. But Megan is a survivor, and you know that she's going to find freedom from this incredibly awful, abusive relationship that she was caught in. Do you think there's, is, is there any place in your head or your heart that you think you love this guy? Or, or is it just more like we're attached somehow? Do you think you love him? Yeah, I thought I thought I loved him. You did? Yeah, I did. I did. Okay. Just it's it's difficult to conceptualize that, but when you're with people, they're still people. And I was more of a person back then where I was rooting for the underdog. I I really thought maybe this might have been caused by something else. Maybe this is caused by too much drinking. Maybe this is caused by the pressure of community service. Maybe this is my fault. Maybe it's a mental health thing. Maybe mm -hmm. I can help him with this. Mm -hmm. Pull him through, right? Yeah. So this is all during the second year. What happens at the end of that year is my visa runs out. To be in the country, I, I needed a visa. My visa ran out. And this was just, you know, the first couple of years after the financial crisis. So no one was handing out full-time jobs. Mm. There were a lot of contract jobs out there, and that's what I'd been getting by on. My contract ended, and they were looking to renew it, but I wasn't a candidate. And I knew that I knew that my performance at work had been suffering because of really what I was going through. So I wasn't in the running for the job. All of a sudden, I don't have a job, and my two options are this. One, I leave the country that I've lived in for six years, that I've studied in, and that mm. I've built a life in. Two, I apply for a partnership visa and stay. So 
to me, that's a no-brainer. I think to myself, just tough it out. Whatever's happening here, you can survive it. This is just, it's a tiny bruise here and there. Tough it out. Get your mm. visa. You're either going to get your visa and you can make a choice and do what you want. If it's not better, it's not better. If it's better, it's better. Or if you don't get your visa, it's done. So I apply for a visa. And this is just, this is something that immigrants or people who've lived in other countries would, would understand more. But you're in a pretty vulnerable position when you're stuck in a, a system of some sorts, and particularly as an immigrant. When I filed that application, from the minute I filed it, I wasn't allowed to work. So I had to rely 100% on my partner. We also mm. couldn't break up. There was no recourse. If that relationship had ended, that application would be void. Okay. And I would have to leave the country. I mean, I knew this was a risk going in, but it was one I was willing to take to stay. And I don't know if I would make that same decision now, but at the time it seemed like it was the only thing to do. What a vulnerable place to be in. He really took the opportunity during that time to isolate me quite considerably. We moved away from the city. We could no longer afford to stay in it without me working full time. He dropped out of the university. I found out much later, right towards the end of our relationship, that he hadn't been going to university that entire year. It turns out he dropped out after the first year. And I thought for most, almost all of our relationship, but all of that year, I thought he was going to university every day and he wasn't. I don't know what he was doing now. It's uh, really haunted me. I, I guess so. I mean, was he like, was he like bringing books home and faking studying or anything like this? I mean, was he at least putting on a, a good act? Yeah, he had all of his books. I don't know if he was pretending to be studying. <laughs> He's like, I'm writing a paper, but I'm really not. Or what's he doing? Yeah, he just, I just, I don't know if he was pretending to be studying, but he certainly left with a backpack every day. Anyways, so that's a bit of a puzzle. But yeah, that year... That year, he officially told me he was dropping out of university. We went and we moved in with his parents for a little bit. Neither of us had a job at that time. They helped us out for a few weeks while he was looking for a job. And we moved to this really small town. You know, it was a lot cheaper to live there. And he got a good job there. And we were able to rent a little place. It was pretty far away from town. It was about a 35-minute walk into town. So for a small town, that's, that's pretty far. I'm I'm fully isolated at this point. I'm not allowed to work. Mm. And I'm half an hour away from walking into a small town. This is pretty far out there. I'm I'm a city kid. I'm used to living in a city. Mm. And I'm waiting on news for my visa. So things aren't great during this time, needless to say. I'm getting pretty good at covering up little bruises and and I'm still not telling anyone. I'm hiding this like it's the world's greatest secret. Was there fairly regular violence during this time? Uh, physical violence? Mm -hmm. Not too much, other than occasionally grabbing my arm or pushing me. Emotional violence, lots of it. And, and you know, a lot of abusers will use this emotional violence so that they don't always have to be physical. I can't imagine. Yes, oh, of course. And many people say it's worse. Emotional is worse. Yeah. Yeah, they'll use that to stays with you you just teach someone if you look at them in a particular way that violence might come 
That's mm, all you mm-hmm. need to do. You don't necessarily need to take the next step. You just sure, have to sure. They, they still feel it. Sure. Yeah. So that was a pretty terrible year. It comes up on the end. We get called into immigration. Oh, I should mention actually during this year, the television episode of what happened that night, oh, that very first night came out. Put that behind me. Oh my goodness. So, so. yeah, I had to. Oh. I had to at the time. I hadn't even thought about it after everything was done. And then I was making dinner one night and I heard my own voice on the TV. Oh, that's horrible. Oh. They just, they did. They did use my footage, but they blurred out my face. They showed the pictures that they took of my injuries and they showed Max. And this was so startling to me, Bill. But when they grabbed him outside, they had the camera on. So they were filming him as they arrested him. Oh, how about that? The camera guy had been waiting downstairs in the lobby. And Max was in a rage. He came in and he saw the cops and he tried to run. And he was screaming and swearing and flailing. Mm. And I had never seen him like that at that point, but I'd seen it a couple times since in between when it happened and when I saw that episode. So I know what I was looking at, but I was horrified to see that he was like that that night. Yes, it was still there even back then. I mean, it mm-hmm. was just under the surface. That was startling wow. and traumatizing to watch that. but. That came out. I just, that was right around the end. It took about seven or eight months for, to get called into immigration for an interview. And we get called in. So here's the thing. I knew we had maybe a 50-50 shot at this because I had called the cops on him. So he had mm-hmm. a record. And I was tied up in this. So I don't know if immigration was going to let that one slide. We had to prove we were somehow in a stable relationship. Mm-hmm. We weren't, but you know, it's a it's an application form. How much can they tell? So they call us in for an interview. We do our interview and leave. And three weeks after that, I got a notice that my visa application had been declined mm. and I was being deported. Oh, just like that. Goodbye. Yeah. Wow. It wasn't uh I wasn't being escorted out of the country. I was it's called self deportation you are given three weeks exactly and you have to leave on your own volition so you buy your ticket you go so this is the thing they told me it was because our relationship was unstable and for a while I assumed that was because of what had happened between us with that criminal record but it was six months after I left when I called immigration and I asked them if they would provide me a written account in more detail on why they had declined my application. Mm-hmm. So at the time, I didn't know this when I was I was about to leave. I was heartbroken, to be honest. I was absolutely heartbroken to be leaving a country I loved. I had no plan. I had no job. I didn't even have a home. Like this was this was dark times for me. But I didn't know at that time the reason they declined my application was yes because he had a criminal record Mm -hmm. but it was because he had a criminal record that he didn't disclose on his application and it was because i didn't know about that criminal record that they declined my application so he had it before he ever really met you he had a apparently a number of items on a criminal record that i knew nothing about 
and I don't know what they are. That is the reason that I had to leave New Zealand. Here you thought you caused your own demise, and it wasn't that at all. To date, that is the worst thing anyone has ever done to me. What is the purpose of that? Mm. What is the purpose of even filing the application? Oh, right, sure. And then waiting all that time, checking the mail, waiting for the, the news, good or bad, and it was never going to happen. You were never going to get that. It was never going to happen. No. Yeah. Yeah. He led you down many paths painfully. Yeah. Painfully is right. So that was pretty tough, that bit. We left. We left New Zealand. I left first. I had to. And I went home to Canada. He also left then? Yeah. He came with me. Oh, I didn't see that coming. Huh. Yeah. This story goes on for one more year. This is tricky because that would probably would have been a good time for me to just put this relationship behind me. Just knowing, of course, I didn't know at the time that he had this criminal record, right? Mm -hmm. I thought this was still all based around that one instance between us. Of course. I'll be the first to say that I don't think I was making very good decisions at this time. You, You sort of feel like your shadow of yourself when you're in the middle of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You do a lot of justification in your head. You still have a lot of shame. You just, you don't want to give up and you don't want to tell anyone else what's happening. And a little bit of fear is starting to creep in at this time. I don't know what's going to happen if I'm just suddenly leaving this guy. There's a lot happening. I might just, it might be safer to stay same, same as much as possible at this time. That last three weeks would have been a pretty dangerous time for me if I'd been leaving him for good. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I didn't know statistically that it would have been a really dangerous time for me, but I just sort of knew it in my bones Mm -hmm. at that time. Mm -hmm. So we just hop over to Canada for a bit. We just want to regroup. Let's take a couple months. Let's, Let's figure out next steps. I'm feeling rejuvenated by Canada. It's nice to be home. Just my family's close by. I'm feeling like, you know, even just being home gives me a little bit of protection. How far is this guy going to go? He's in a foreign country. Mm-hmm. You know, my parents are next door. Is he going to be really, how far is he going to push this here? I just, I, I was right on that front. He wasn't particularly physically violent in any of the time we were in Canada, but he, the emotional violence continued and that same process of the same cycle of tension building and then thing there would be an argument and he would threaten things he wouldn't be physically violent but threaten to hurt me what would he threaten what would he say i will lock you out i'll leave without you i'll lots of threats about how he would hurt me so it's more cruel than anything mm-hmm. else hard to go through that because you believe that it's all true and you know it also wasn't like that all the time this is just i don't remember a lot of the good stuff in there i'm sure there was good stuff because there must have been something why i was staying something redeeming yes yeah i just it's been more than 10 years now so i don't remember a lot of that stuff Mm -hmm. anyways we We spend that time in Canada and we come up with this plan. We're going to move to Australia. We'll move to Australia because he can work there. If you're a New Zealander, you're allowed to live and work in Australia. And and I can get a temporary visa there. 
I can get a one-year visa, I can get a job, and I can hopefully turn that into a long-term visa or a long-term job. Max is just sort of, at this point, he's my ticket to getting back down under. You know, I love Canada, it's my home, but I, I built a life somewhere else, and I was really proud of that. It was one of the best things I've ever done in my life, was, was live overseas. I really wanted to get that back. I was so heartbroken from New Zealand and, mm-hmm. and I wanted to at least be close to my friends, uh, at least flying distance and remove the vast expanse of the Pacific Ocean between us. Mm-hmm. So we, we spent, I think it was about six, I think it was six months altogether before we got to Australia. We got to Australia, we moved to Melbourne. Melbourne's a really awesome city. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful place in the world, wonderful culture. It's huge. It's a big city and stunningly, stunningly beautiful. We move there. We get a little motel. We're going to stay in this motel until we find a place to live. Almost right away, he gets a job. He gets a, he gets a job as a server at a restaurant that was shooting for a Michelin star. So he'd had some professional experience with serving. He could do that job without a background check. And, and he goes and he starts working there. We're in this little motel. He got that job right away. It was like within a week. In the meantime, I'm looking for a place to live. I just signed a lease on a place by the beach. I'm pretty excited about this. It's like right on the beach. It's a really trendy street. There's all of these pubs and restaurants. It's fun. It's busy. And like this could be the dream. We, I guess, I didn't, I didn't see this coming because everything that had happened. I thought was somewhat controllable up until that point. I didn't think it was right. And I knew that I was in a volatile relationship and I wanted it to change and I thought it could change. And, and he really probably fed into that a lot. He, he often talked about, I can do better. I can change. You know, if this happens, I can be this way. Or if you do this, I can be this way. Mm -hmm. I just, I didn't see it escalating to a great degree. And that's what happened in Australia is we saw that final escalation in violence. I said it earlier, it builds incrementally over time. So something really bad might happen, like that thing on the balcony. Mm-hmm. It's very bad. Yes. You feel as though your life is threatened. Sure. But then suddenly at the end of that, a little bruise on your arm is no longer that bad. It's normalized a bit over time. Yes, I can see how that would be. Yeah. So it's Australia. I think we're on the precipice of greatness. I think we're just about to finally get back. We're finally in a big city and just be able to work and and everything will be great here. We're in the hotel and he comes back one night from work and he is in a rage. He's in an utter rage. I don't know why, but he comes into the room just this violence can be very abrupt. It will come out of nowhere and really surprise you. It's unsettling. But he came into the motel room we were in. The first thing he did was he shoved me so hard that I hit the bed. The bed was in the middle of the room, but he, he shoved me and it moved the bed back. And the bed hit the wall and dented the wall. Yeah. And that's how hard he shoved me. I... I mean, I'll just pause there and I'll say this. I have three types of memories about this time in my life. The first is I remember everything like it was yesterday. Oh, boy. 
The second type of memory is that I remember things, but they're starting to fade around the edges with time. And the third type of memory is really troubling to me. I don't remember some things at all. I have no memory and I never have. And I, I just know that that's likely because of some sort of dissonance. My, my brain is shutting down to protect me. Defense mechanism. It's possible. Yeah. It's possible I was blacking out. Yes. I was thinking of blackout too. Yes. Yeah. I just, I won't know. I only remember a couple of things from that night. One, he threw my laptop at my face mm. and the other was, um, at one point I, I came to and I was on the bed. He was kneeling over me and he had his knees on my arms. So I was pinned and he was strangling me with one hand, but he was also squirting water up my nose with the other. Oh my. And I just believe he was trying to either strangle me or drown me in some way at that point. I don't remember anything else from that night. Uh, I just, it must've been horrible because when I woke up the next day, I was really at a very big moment of awareness looking in the mirror the next morning. Just what he had done to me was so visible all over me. I was so shocked by the level of violence and, and how much that had escalated. Mm. Nothing had really ever come close. He'd never strangled me. That was that was new. And, and that's so dangerous. And he'd never hit my face before. That was new. Mm -hmm. I had two black eyes. I just... I had bruises everywhere. Mm. I had a, just a blood vessel broken in my eye. I looked awful. Wow. I'm so sorry to hear all this. Yeah, that's no one could ever deserve that. Yes. Yeah, thanks. I know it's tough. It's tough to say. It's tough to hear. But just I, I say it because I didn't anticipate this dramatic escalation. And, and I don't know if you your brain ever would anticipate something like that, but mm -hmm. it can happen. I just, I took a shower that morning and just big handfuls of hair were coming out. I just assume at some point he'd been pulling my hair or dragging me around by my hair. I have no memories of this. I have none. I just saw it on myself the next day. And Was he there that next day at that moment when you came to? Yeah. Yeah, he was uh, there. Is he saying anything to you at all? He was there. He went and he got me a Slurpee. And he brought it back, and he was a nice guy. Uh, he didn't apologize for it, but he sort of acted like it was normal, and he acted really nice. It just that triggered a whole bunch of stuff for me. One physically, uh, it triggered a, a shaking response. I started shaking at that time, and I couldn't ever quite mm. knock it. I, sometimes I'd shake a little less, but I just shook twenty-four-seven. Yeah. I just had a tremor in my hand was the, the minimum and, and at full blast I was really wow. shaken. Um the other was uh this just we had crossed a line. That that was a line. I needed to figure this out. That was that moment looking in that mirror and seeing my face that way, this has to change or I have to get out and probably both mm. things at once. Mm. So I'm still trying to wrap my head around Kind of the immediate 
I can't go outside because I look so horrible. Maybe I'll just let this heal and then I'm going to take a next step. You know, I'm just, I'll get to a point where makeup can cover it and mm -hmm. then I'll go out. So in this time, we move into our new apartment that I signed a lease on, the one by the beach. And I'm mostly staying inside. Uh, it was just, it was like I, ha I hadn't healed yet and it happened again. And it was right, right after we moved into that apartment. It just, the, the level of violence physically escalated dramatically. But then also the time between violent episodes had shortened considerably from a couple of months to a couple of weeks. So it happens again. You get into I, the new apartment, it happens again? It happens again. Yeah. Goodness. It happens again. And just at the end of this, I'm I'm feeling a little bit broken. I'll be honest. Uh, this has triggered some sort of deep. I, I think at this point I'm gonna die. I I think that's an outcome of this. Mm -hmm. I gotta figure this out. I all this time I I'd spent two weeks thinking I'll just let these bruises heal a little bit so I can go outside. And now I'm stuck in this again. I might never get out of here if I sure if I sure of course. Enough. This is really I I don't know why. You know, this could have been great. This could have been an awesome life for both him and I. I don't know why it's come to this. I don't know why the violence escalated to yes. that point right there. But it did. And it, clearly this wasn't going to yes. get anything but worse. So I remember he went to work. And I went and I walked down to the police station. And I just had this moment. I was standing across the street from the police station. And I was just staring at the building. I just, I couldn't go in, but I couldn't walk away. And I was standing there thinking through what happens mm -hmm. if I do this. And I must have looked just really quite bizarre doing that. Um, I don't know what, if any police officers were looking at the window, looking at me, looking at them. It might not have come off the right way, but I just, I was frozen in this moment of, is this the right path forward? Are police going to help me? Or... Just what I was thinking in that time was, what are the chances that they give me a protection order, but that he doesn't go to jail? Because I think I've heard you say this before, Bill. I agree with it. You can't poke a bear with a stick and then hope that a piece of paper is going to save you. It is paper. Yeah. Just nothing to that point made me think he would be willing to follow, mm -hmm. you know, a law let alone just something someone told him to do. It's more like lighting the fuse of a bomb that's going to go off again, big time. Yeah. So I hummed and hawed in front of that police station, and I decided not to go in. And instead, I walked to a payphone, and I called the domestic violence hotline. Good for you. Good move. Yeah. It turned out there was a, there was a service, an in-person service for this. It was only a couple blocks away from where I lived, the beach. They sent me there. They said, go and talk to someone in person right now. So I went and I talked to someone in person. Mm -hmm. At that point, I, a couple things came to mind during that. Oh, gosh, that was hard. That was so hard. I was in this waiting room, and I was surrounded by women who were so severely injured. Oh. A lot of people had casts oh. or huge bandages. And I was just, I was there, and I was like, you know, you always think when you're in it, is it, is this bad? I, I don't know. But 
in that waiting room, I felt like I was the one getting off lightly. Mm. And that was, that was a difficult realization for me because I also thought in that time, maybe there's several steps here that are going to get a lot worse for me. You know, it, it was just such an eye opener. I, I met with someone there. I did, this was another shock for me. It had never occurred to me that shelters would be full. It had oh. never occurred to me that I, I couldn't go to a shelter. And at the time when I first just really, really needed it, I, they told me there was a two month waiting list and I just, two months, I don't, I don't know what you do with that. I don't know what it takes to, it's awful. I don't know what it takes to be a person who works in this system that has to turn women away. I, that just what heroes to even work in a system like that. Yes. I, so what they could do for me was help me put together a safety plan. Yes. So they walked me through a little bit of what you need to do to get out. Yeah, smart move. Yeah, my plan was this. There's immigration to think of. All of my stuff was still in New Zealand. So I was going to see if I could get back into New Zealand and pick up my things. This is where I found out about my immigration application was at that point. That was when I found out about his criminal record. So I had been in contact. I was emailing New Zealand immigration. I taped some things behind the fridge. My passport, I taped behind the fridge. A credit card, my driver's license. Now, did you do that on your own? Or was that part of the escape plan? That was part of the escape plan. Wow. I love that. Yeah. I just, I started getting ready. I didn't have anywhere to go. There was no room in a shelter. I, I just can't sleep on the street. Uh, so I got to ride it out a little bit, see if I can get this answer from immigration, get everything together, get my name off the lease, get my name off the bills, figure out how to do that while I'm still living with this guy. And he comes home one day really early. I just, to get any of this done, I'm surprised that I did it. I was, I wasn't sleeping very much. I was often sleeping at odd times. When he was working, usually I'd try and sleep. And I, I, was, I was quite severely depressed. I, it was very difficult for me at that time to put one foot in front of another. Somehow I managed to get that far, and I was so close. He comes home one day. We hadn't even really reached the peak of this tension-building phase. And it's like the morning. I remember it was a Sunday. It was a morning and he was home he should have been at work and and i was sleeping i was sleeping at that point fully clothed i was i was always sleeping fully clothed at that point because i was prepared and when i woke up to him he was about two inches away from my face and he was just screaming at me and that was how i woke up and i was startled awake and i, I was just first thing i heard him say was i found your emails to immigration and you don't need a, a advocate for domestic violence to tell you that that's a really dangerous spot to be in. I, I have never more strongly felt in my entire life that I needed to get out of there or I was going to die. I, my life was at risk at that point. And what he was saying to me was alarming to me. Just one, he'd managed to get into my email bill. And I had been changing my password every single day to... My 
goodness. random combinations of numbers. Even just lying there as he was screaming at me, I was trying to figure out how he'd gotten into my email. I thought he must have installed one of those programs where you can track keystrokes on a keyboard. Oh, right. Sure. Yeah. That's deep stuff. It was before the days when you had teeny tiny cameras. So it couldn't have been a camera. So I thought it might have been that. I'm on high alert. Every single cell in my body is just awake. I am reading every single thing this guy is doing. He's just in a, a raging mess. He's pacing around the bedroom now. He pulls me out of bed and he pulls me out into the living room and he makes me sit on the couch. He won't let me leave from the couch. Mm. And he's pacing back and forth in front of me. I think I'm going to have to kill you. He's, he's just... thinking it through. He's thinking it through and telling you while he's thinking. Yeah, that's exactly what he was doing. He was just pacing back and forth, thinking through next steps mm -hmm. and saying it out loud. And I just, it must have been written all over my face that I was looking for an opportunity to get away there. He paced back and forth for hours. I didn't know what to do. Just what do you do in a situation like that? I didn't know. It was weird that it hadn't gotten violent yet. I was feeling like that was a bad sign because like, why is he waiting? Mm -hmm. And he's telling me he's going to kill me. This is new. Uh, what is going to happen next? So I, this is the only thing I could do. We had a whole bunch of beer in the fridge and I'm like, why don't you go get a drink? Just have a drink and we'll talk it out. So we would pace to the fridge and he'd get a beer and then he would sort of pace back and forth. Sometimes he'd sit on the coffee table just right in front of me and he'd stare at me and he'd just drink his beer. And I kept sort of suggesting he drink beer. Like he didn't need my suggestion. At some point he was just going and he was drinking beer. Just this lasted all day. All day. He'd come in in the morning and just I think it was about 11 at night and I hadn't been allowed to even get up from the couch I was he wouldn't I mean are we me. talking this is over 12 hours this is going on yeah it's about 12 hours and and he's drunk at this point and I've been watching this progress for a while because I thought it might be in my best interest if he got so drunk he fell asleep sure so I'm watching him and he's starting to stumble He's stumbling quite a bit as he's doing this. And I, he went to get a beer and I just weighed my chances. And then I took a shot and I ran. Hit the door. He was facing, yeah, he was, he was facing into the fridge and he was in between me and the door. It was just one big room, you know, mm. living room, kitchen, all in one room in this, in this apartment. And I looked at him, and then I looked at the door. I don't know what sort of mathematical calculation you do in your head to figure out the factor of how much he would stumble. But I thought he uh. might not be able to run too quickly after me, and I, I ran for the door. I just, I got to the door, I opened the door, I ran down the hall, I got to the stairs, I ran down the stairs of the apartment building i ran into the lobby i ran outside i didn't have any shoes on i didn't have anything on me I, no keys nothing i i just ran and 
I ran into the lobby. I ran outside. I didn't know if he was behind me. I didn't know my just heart was in my throat. I had no idea. I was running for my life. I had no idea if he was behind me. I couldn't, my heart was thumping. I couldn't hear anything. It was like I was, it was fuzzy around me. Uh Yeah, I can see that. What was downstairs in the ground floor of our building, because it was a busy street, there was a pub on the ground floor of our building. There was a Domino's pizza. There was a dry cleaner and there was a Thai restaurant. And that was all in the base of my building. So when I ran out on the, onto the street, those were my options. And I went for the Thai restaurant. And I, I ran into the Thai restaurant. And I just came in and just took one look at the person and said, hide me. And they did. Oh, how about that? They took me. Sorry. That's okay. They took me into their back room. It had a, a desk in there, some sort of like office slash storage room. There's all these boxes of food everywhere and shelves. They took me back there and I just, they brought me a beer and and, and a cordless phone. And I, I was shaking so hard, I couldn't hold anything. So I asked if they would call 911 for me. I just... I did the waiting game for the cops again. Men, they do not come quick in either of those countries. I had stopped shaking at that point. I'd, I'd actually finished the beer. It had been a long time since I'd had anything to drink. And I just, uh, sitting on my couch for all that time, and I, I was waiting in that back room, and, and the cops finally came. There was one cop. He came and comes into that little back office, and he just looks me up and down. And then he spends a little bit of time, like a moment, he just looks at my feet, got bare feet. And then he looks at me and he says, okay, well, it just looks like he hasn't hurt you tonight. So what I can do is I can escort you upstairs and give you five minutes to get your things. Hmm. I just, I'll take it. I, I got five minutes, I'll take it. I, I'm not going to be able to change this cop's mind. There's a lot of injustice in this, in my opinion. I don't know why I'm the one that needs to pack up and leave in the middle of that. But surely it's it's not legal to be making threats of murder. But I've got five minutes and that's all I get. And in that moment, I'll take it. So the cop escorts me upstairs. I, I just, it's a strange mental state that you're in at that moment because hyper arousal. You're bracing yourself for whatever comes next. And the cop goes in first and, and then talks with Max a little bit. And then I go in after him. And Max actually takes a lunge. He like takes a weird lungy step forward like he's coming for me. And the cop has to stand in between him and I. And he holds Max back and he's like, whoa, 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 hold on there. Just let her get her stuff. I don't just, okay. Again, why am I the one leaving? Uh, Sure. Yes, that doesn't make any sense. So I just pile stuff in a suitcase. Then I go out into the living room and I move the fridge. And Max is just looking at me like... Uh, he was just furious. He just saw me pull out my passport. I I don't know if he could see exactly what I had taped back there, but he just knew I was hiding stuff back there. So I took my things and my suitcase and put on some flip-flops and I I left. I left that relationship. I had to I had to get a plane ticket. I had to call my parents. That was a, that was another hard conversation. I 
just the next day I went to do all of this and I realized this this was really frightening to me at the time, but I realized that he drained all of the money in our accounts. Oh, and I couldn't that? figure out how he did that because this had all happened on a Sunday. Mm. So he must have done it before. And I don't know if that was maybe some sort of control mechanism. He knew I was leaving, so he was trying to keep me there, or if it was more sinister. But I just, thankfully, I just managed to store that Visa card. I It was all I could do. I wasn't getting that money back. I So I got a plane ticket. I hid for four days in a hotel until my flight left. I was so careful at that time. Didn't go outside. I just... I was really nervous. I knew he'd probably be calling around hotels looking for me. You know, they have your name because they take your ID when you sign in. But I was like, just, you cannot tell anyone I'm here. This isn't, this is a matter of life or death. It's, please don't make a mistake. Mm-hmm. So I stayed in the hotel. At that time, he was sending me a bunch of emails. I managed within that four days to get my name off of the lease. I managed to get my name off of a bill. I didn't want to be saddled with any ongoing debt in a country I wasn't going to be living in for services that I wasn't using. I flew into New Zealand first to pick up my stuff. And then I went to Canada. In New Zealand, I just, that was very strange for me. All of my stuff was mixed with Max's stuff and it was sitting in boxes in his parents' garage. And I went to get my stuff, but I didn't tell his parents I was coming until right before I got there. Oh, good. They didn't even know I was in the country. So I called them and I asked if I could come get my stuff. And he must have told them what happened because they were they were pretty different towards me. They told me, yeah, I could come and get it, but I wasn't allowed to come in the house. And when I got there, I mean, they'd nicely laid out a couple of tarps on the driveway, but they just had pulled everything out so I could do all the sorting on the driveway. And they sat there and they watched me the whole time I did it can imagine the stories he gave them. Yeah. I really liked his parents. I was, that was hard for me, but, you know, it is what it is. I was never going to see them again. So I, uh, I packed up my stuff, and then I got on a flight, and I went back to Canada. And that's where I started again from scratch. Just, you know, I came back. It was winter. It was January when I came to Canada. And I'd left summer. I didn't even own clothes for Canada anymore. I didn't have a parka. I was wearing flip-flops. And I uh, I just remember my parents picked me up from the airport. And my mom brought me a winter coat. Just, I'm so grateful to my parents. I think I probably could have done it without them. But I'm so thankful that I didn't have to. Your parents probably never looked so good in your whole life as when you saw them that day. Yeah. You want to talk about real live unconditional love mom and dad yeah picking you up from the airport with a winter coat like just i hope someone gives them a medal for that one day so i i that's my story i started again i i built a whole life for myself in canada and i i didn't hear from him after i got back to canada i didn't i blocked him from everything i knew so I don't know if it would have been possible for him to reach me. I thought maybe the distance between us was a good move, that that was enough to dissuade him from following me. I just, I saw my Facebook account, people try, you get notifications that people are trying to log in. I got a bunch of those in the first couple of months. 
I got a couple different ones from the New Zealand Revenue Agency. Someone had been trying to access my account. Oh. I mean, I can't say for sure it was him, but I don't know why it would have been anyone else. It's too coincidental in my mind at that time. Mm-hmm. He somehow wasn't reaching out directly to me, and I was thankful for that. I just, I mean, I was, I was a real wreck when I got home. It took me a long time to be able to talk about this. It's taken me years to tell this story out loud. It took me a really long time to come to terms with this. I, I don't know if I have. But I think I'm on a, a journey towards that. And Yeah, you are. I mean, from what I can tell, what I can tell by looking at you on the screen and listening to your story and everything, you've, whatever you went through, you are, I'd have to say, most of the way back to the real you. You know, yeah. it's painful to listen to, but it's unimaginable surviving all that that you've gone through and having your act together now, which seems like you really do. You've reclaimed yourself. So God bless you for that. Thank you. I'm sure you've asked yourself over the course of time what he was trying to accomplish with all these twists and turns in this horrible three years. Where do you net out on that? What do you think what do you think was going on inside that head of his? I don't know. I I wish I knew. And I can, I mean I'll never be able to say for sure what's going on inside someone else's head. I can only make assumptions. It's clear to me that he was in just he fit a lot of the characteristics of an abuser. So to him, this was somewhat inevitable. It might have been me, but if it wasn't if it wasn't me, is what I'm trying to say, it would have been someone else. Oh, no doubt in my mind. No doubt in my mind at all. I, and you probably weren't the first that he pulled most of this on. No, I know that I'm not. I've had two different people reach out to me who were before me. Yes. And then I know there was one after. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm not surprised at all. Yeah, so he does have the characteristics of a serial abuser. I just think for me at that time, when I was in his life, he was just looking for his next, he was looking for the next person he could treat that way. Mm -hmm. And and I don't know what motivates that. I don't know if that's, maybe it's, it's something to do with control. I don't know where that came from. I certainly never saw that in his parents, but that doesn't mean it wasn't there. Yes. These things often go unseen, and people don't talk about this. I didn't. Other people don't. We, so many of us don't talk about it. We all have our reasons, but keeping it a secret just leaves us vulnerable, leaves us vulnerable because we don't have the knowledge to know how to identify it. So I don't know if I can say for sure what made him do it. It must be a terrible life that he leads, that he feels he needs to do that. I just, no love lost for this guy. i just happy that he's out of my life. I haven't experienced anything like that since. But the only thing I can do is put myself in a position where I can learn as much as possible about this. It's something that provides me a lot of comfort right now is to really understand how these things happen because we're not alone. We, we aren't. And you're led to believe you are. And, you know, the isolation physically puts you in that place where you're alone, and then your mind does the rest of it to kind of convince you that you're alone or this is different, no one knows what I'm going through, or that you don't want to share this with anybody because it's so embarrassing. They think that you have this wonderful relationship and you don't. So you just more and more wind up one brick at a time building this place that you live and then you really feel trapped just layers and layers upon this and the idea of getting out of it just seems like it's completely impossible 
but you are officially out. And the thing is about your story that I'm listening to is that it's so compelling and there's so much that others can learn from your story because most people are back where you were in the very beginning. You know, they don't know very much about it and they think they met Mr. Right, so to speak. And these guys are bringing all the goodies and they look a certain way and they act a certain way, which at least seems to be kind of attractive in the beginning. And then the sun starts coming up a little bit differently from day to day and it's just not as nice. And you realize you kind of been hooked. You're stuck in there. It's really awful. It's just such an insidious thing. And the lack of knowledge still, you know, I think it's getting better, at least in the U.S., it's getting better that at least there are some school systems that are out there and they're trying to bring people in to talk or the health program, maybe put some lessons in there somewhere along the, the way and, and gets kids involved in that because you can never know too much about this. And the fact that it happens to so many people is also a big shock. The only statistic I ever use is that one in three women will experience serious physical violence in an intimate relationship at some point, but that's the physical part. So more than that, we'll experience the emotional abuse like you were talking about. So it's there's quite a lot of it. And for any of us, parents, for kids, for teachers, for anybody, for politicians to just bury your head in the sand is like, well, you know, that's really not, that doesn't happen around here. It's not that kind of an area. And all these things to dismiss it. All you're doing is turning off the possibility of knowing about it and understanding it so you can protect people who are perfectly innocent getting dragged into these horrible relationships. Yeah. You know, you've done a great thing here speaking with me today. Really have. And it's it's hard to imagine how many people you'll help. I could just, I can tell you, Bill, you've helped me. You have helped me. I just, I saw this podcast come up as a recommended podcast. When I listened to it, I, I, I felt understood and and I also equally felt courageous enough to come forward and tell my own story and that was an important part in this journey that I'm on for me so you have helped me with that and so have the people who have come on your podcast that's a great thing you do well that that's a, and that's a great thing to hear honestly you know a large part of my motivation is is I really do ask myself what my daughter would want our family to do or for me to do you know she's no longer with us but but if we can take what we're learning all the time and find some ways to to uh, communicate it to others you know then it has to help somehow even if they just catch a couple things they they say wow that sounds like uh, what my girlfriend's going through with this guy or or if my mom's dating because my dad's not around, you know, my mom needs to hear some of these things because the guy she's dating is bad news. Or, of course, as we said earlier, it does go both ways. There's a guy that uh, I'm trying to work out a date and time right now who wants to come on and talk about abuse that he suffered in, in what was his second marriage. So, so I don't know his story very well, but I'm sure we'll be doing that soon. But Megan, you and I had many emails where we discussed how or even if you would do this interview. And uh, But what was always there in all your emails was your desire to tell your story specifically because it could help other people. And I will promise you right here, and I don't make many promises, but I promise you it'll help a lot of people, thousands of people. I have no doubt in my mind, and I mean that when I say thousands. The thing I like about it is that today's victim is tomorrow's survivor. And there are some domestic violence agencies that I've spoken with who won't even use the word victim. They look at it as 
there are survivors and there are people who are going to be survivors. They don't refer to victims at all, and not with that terminology. But I just wanted to finish by saying that you have my utmost respect for sharing this nightmarish narrative that you've given. And, and so thank you, Megan, for putting your story where it'll do the most good. And that's where people can access it 24-7 and listen to it and really get caught up in your story so that they learn about what can happen, what really does happen, and also how to get loose. And, you know, you made that move to go to the domestic violence people. And that was, that's one I wish you had made year, literally years earlier. Thank you so much. This is great that you did this. So brave of you to do yeah, this. I, it never feels brave when you're in the moment, but I, I, I truly hope that this story, I, you know, maybe it helps someone identify something that's going wrong in their life or, or someone else's life that they know, or, or maybe in some way it just helps unburden them from something they've been through. I hope it helps. There are a lot of people who are at that tipping point. You know, they've managed to crawl up to the top of the fence and they don't know. It was like you outside of the police station. Do I go? Do I stand here? Do I go back? They needed that voice, like your voice, to come up and say, here's what you really need to do. And that's what I think that we've accomplished here today. I mean, you're telling people this is what you need to do. Your story is horrific and nobody wants to go down that path, but they also have to understand that that path isn't horrible every step of the way. I mean, there are parts and there's a lot of hope and you'd like to get back to how wonderful it was in the beginning. And there are all these things that are pulling you in all these different directions and you just want it to work and you want it to be better and you want that place by the water. And, you know, it's just with some people out there, those things are unattainable. You know, they're just bent a certain way that they're going to be abusive predators. And I don't fully understand why those people are out there, but the sooner that we can recognize that, the safer we'll all be. So, Yeah. It's absolutely shocking to me that women have not evolved to have thorns. I just, I don't know where, how this is just so rampant in every single community, in every single space that we have. Just the only thing we can do is speak out it's so tough, everything that happens in here. It's a horrible, horrible thing to, for anyone to go through. I really, I do appreciate you. I do. Well, same here. I really mean that. I don't mean to echo you or mirror you, as we talked about earlier. There's a lot of trust. There's a lot of trust I have in you and you have in me to do something like this together. So that's a, that's a big responsibility. You did a great thing. Thank you. Just thanks. Thanks again to you, Bill. Um, Kia kaha. What's that? <laughs> Kia kaha means be strong in Maori, which is the language of the Aboriginal people of New Zealand. Kia kaha. Ah. Be strong. Stay strong. Yep. Wow. So, kia kaha, Bill. I won't say it because I'll goof it up, but uh, be strong. <laughs> This is the end of part two of two parts of my conversation with Megan. And I just want to thank you very much for listening. And I encourage you to listen to some of the other survivor stories and others that are on the When Dating Hurts podcast. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank my guests and my listening audience for their support. It is clear our listeners look for and play survivor episodes above all others they get caught up between the forces of good and evil 
All the time pulling for the moment a victim becomes a survivor. I am open to other victims and survivors who want to join with me on the When Dating Hurts podcast. We can shine a bright light on the epidemic of dating and domestic violence. We can improve lives and save some innocent people from a lifetime of broken dreams. If you want to tell your victim or survivor story, please contact me at Bill Mitchell at WhenDatingHurts.com. That's Bill Mitchell at WhenDatingHurts.com. Hey guys, I'm Jamie Beebe. And I'm Jake Deptula. We're the hosts of the true crime podcast, Strictly Stalking. Brought to you from Podcast One. Each week, Strictly Stalking gives stalking survivors the platform to share their stories in their own words. Do you know why survivors refer to stalking as murder in slow motion? Have you ever felt like you were being hunted by a stranger? Would you know where to turn if a stalker was living in your house and you didn't know? We're bringing you these stories to raise awareness about stalking and give you the resources to know what to do if you or someone you know is being stalked. So tune in to Strictly Stalking each week as we dive into the largely unknown crime of stalking. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite true crime podcast. 